Musician Alan Doyle takes us around Newfoundland, starting with his hometown, Petty Harbour. A little harbour town surrounded on three sides by steep hills and a narrow entrance to the Atlantic Ocean to protect it from the storms. Canadian TV host Rick Mercer grew up on the island too. I keep forgetting that that's what a lot of people want to come and see because I grew up with whales, you know, jumping on my way to school. I could see whales <laughs> jumping in the ocean as the school bus went up the road. And icebergs were there. So, uh, yeah, of course, come see the whales and the icebergs. Coming up, we get recommendations for Canadian travels from two of the country's favourites. Plus, we learn how getting your drink to go is a perfectly civilised way to enjoy strolling the streets of New Orleans. New Orleans is a very, very walkable place. Walking with a drink in your hand slows you down, and it allows you to pause and appreciate. Explore the far corners of Canada and share a cocktail in New Orleans in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. For many Americans who live within a few hours' drive of the border, a getaway to Canada is like a long-overdue visit with the next-door neighbors. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, two of Canada's favorite personalities join us. Rick Mercer brought Canadians together each week for 15 years, having lots of fun exploring the country. He recommends his favorite Canadian getaways for us in just a bit. And singer Alan Doyle takes us around his island home of Newfoundland. And while it always seems to be party time in New Orleans, we've found an interesting way to view its colorful history through the lens of a cocktail glass. The city's official drinks historian explains what the cocktails and adult libations of New Orleans can teach us about the city's flamboyant history and its one-of-a-kind status as a delightfully unconventional American city. Let's start out in the Atlantic, on an island that straddles the new world and the old with its own style and character. Alan Doyle grew up on Newfoundland, the only place he's ever called home. He joins us from the CBC studios in the provincial capital of St. John's. Alan, what should we know about Newfoundland that makes it feel like a really special part of Canada? Newfoundland is an island, a province of Canada, very recently a a country of its own and a republic of of Great Britain. Uh, But it's the island in the middle of the uh, Atlantic Ocean, basically just uh, south of Greenland. If, you know, if you're confused, I always tell people in the, <laughs> kicking around, if you can't find us, it's, it's where the Titanic sank. Ah, that's right. Okay. People know that. <laughs> and uh, until 1949, you were actually an independent country and then voted in a very close election to join Canada. Correct. So uh, Newfoundland, I would imagine, has a relatively small population. How many people are on the island? And I understand the capital, uh, St. John's, is, is really the only urban center. The population of the island of Newfoundland would be right around 470, 480,000. I would say that about half of that population lives within 20 minutes or a half hour of the capital city of St. John's. And St. John's is a tight little harbor town. The entrance to the harbor here is actually called the Narrows. Hmm. Uh, But surprisingly, big ships can fit through it, as they have for centuries now that, you know, St. John's has been a, you know, a safe haven for ships crossing the ocean for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then, of course, the city crawls up the hills on a few sides from the harbor. And so it's a very older kind of European-looking city Mm -hmm. that you'd kind of see uh, more of in um, the southeast of of Ireland or or, or England, a small British, Irish kind of looking city. In your book, you talk about how Irish people consider Newfoundlanders in a lot of cases just swimming Irishmen. A lot of Irishmen who (laughs) were fishermen came all the way over there for the cod and ended up staying. And to this day, you've got uh, a lot of Irish uh, in your culture. You write in your book uh, about your hometown. It's a port town called Petty Harbor. 
Describe what, why you choose to live in Petty Harbor and, and why it would be interesting to visit if we were traveling around Newfoundland. Beautiful little sort of perfectly picture postcard, typical Newfoundland outport town. A little harbor town surrounded on three sides by steep hills and a narrow entrance to the Atlantic Ocean to protect it from the storms, but then to allow smaller fishing boats to come and go. And throughout different points in history, those boats would have been primarily catching North Atlantic codfish, but also a lobster fishery and a crab fishery and to go out in the winter to hunt seabirds and seals and to get berries on the coast and and look very much a living off the land society and culture throughout history. We're seeing Newfoundland through the eyes of favorite son Alan Doyle right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Alan's known internationally as the lead singer of the folk rock band Great Big Sea, and he's released a number of solo albums, including A Week at the Warehouse. His autobiography, Where I Belong, paints a vivid portrait of growing up in a small fishing town, and it's a bestseller in Canada. His follow-up book is A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. Alan was also awarded the Order of Canada in 2017 for his contributions to the culture of Newfoundland. His website is alandoyle.ca. Alan, in your book I was reading about how in your little town, your little tiny uh, petty harbor, there's actually the same dynamic uh, historically as you've had in a lot of Irish communities where you've got Catholic this and Protestant that. Uh, Yeah. When I grew up, religion defined the actual footprint of the town. And I think that's a very traditional kind of Irish and kind of way to do it. There was a river that splits Petty Harbor right in half. And on the side that I'm from, the Catholic side, there was a church, a school, a fish plant, and a convenience store. Crossed the bridge in Petty Harbor when I grew up, and there was an Anglican school, a church. And then over on that side, there was another convenience store and another fish plant. And again, this is a town of 500 people, you know, and it literally had a duplicate on the other side. Would there be a kind of tribal loyalty where if you're a good Protestant, you would keep it in the family? I mean, that was kind of long before my time and a little bit in my parents' time, but certainly in my grandparents' time, it would have been very, if not unusual, it would have been definitely talked about if somebody crossed the bridge, so to speak. Would anybody marry (laughs) between the, the tribes? It would have been, it would have been like I say, in my grandparents' generation, that would have been a notable thing. But I mean, when I was a kid, the most practical thing that it did for me was that we had two schools, right? Right. So there was a little Catholic school that survived in Petty Harbor. But all my Protestant friends, they all got bussed to St. John's 30, yeah, 40 okay. kilometers away yeah. to go to school as kindergartens. It's just ridiculous to think about it, you know, like... Those kids could have easily just come to our school. <laughs> you know, they could have walked. They would have been indoctrinated by the wrong religion. That's right. They would have had the wrong, the wrong Jesus. When I was in Scotland, uh, Glasgow is a town with a with a Catholic Protestant. Struggle. Oh, is it ever? And uh, there's two soccer teams and boy, Ran- Rangers and Celtic, man. Yeah, and you got to be on the I, right. I've team. toured in Scot. <laughs> I've toured there many times, and and I always say that Glasgow is the the only town I've ever been in my life that where a punch in the face is not supposed to ruin your night. You know, you'd mention it the next day, but you wouldn't yeah. go home or anything like you wouldn't call the police <laughs> or anything like that. You know, like you probably end up drinking with the very people that punched you. If I had four or five days to drive around the island, would I see any Viking sites or anything goes way back? Uh, would I come yeah. upon any great trails? Uh, take me on a, just a quick run around the island. What would I see? If you flew into the west coast of Newfoundland or arrived on the west coast of Newfoundland by ferry from the mainland of Canada, you very quickly make your way to Grossmore National Park. And that's one of the UNESCO World Heritage Site right now. Parts of that look like Norwegian fjords. It's just a spectacular natural piece of geography. Uh-huh. If you went quickly up the northern 
arm of Newfoundland, what we call the Northern Peninsula, you'd arrive in Lancer Meadows. And that's one of the oldest recorded Viking settlements hmm. anywhere in the world. And uh, if you made your way back down and came to the central part of Newfoundland, you'd be very in between Gander and Grand Falls. And that's, of course, where the famous hospitality happened during 9-11, when the airport in Gander hosted so many planes that needed to get out of the sky on 9-11. And the population of Gander and the surrounding towns basically tripled. <laughs> and then if you made your way closer towards where I live, towards St. John's on the East Coast, you'd very quickly come to Bonavista and Trinity and the Bonavista Peninsula, which if people have seen a few major motion pictures that have been shot in Newfoundland, they'll see the landscape and the town of Trinity and Bonavista, such movies like um, The Shipping News. And then keep going east and eventually you'll make your way into the capital city, which is St. John's. Is it kind of a circular tour? Is that what people do? Yeah, that'd be a big one. I mean, one of the things you quickly realize when you start doing your, your planning right. is that Newfoundland, the island, is really big. Michelle from Detroit emailed us, and, and uh, she writes, I plan to hike the East Coast Trail this summer, and I want to do it right uh, to be at St. John's for the Folk Festival. What advice do you have for me about the East Coast Trail and the Folk Festival? Well, both are fantastic. I've played the Folk Festival many times, and when I don't play it, I go to it. <laughs> it's right in the dead in the middle of St. John's. It's right in the heart of the city in a park called Bannerman Park, and it's fantastic. And it's mostly local music, local traditional music. So, you know, lots of accordions and fiddles and whistles and, and sea shanties and songs, and they're all awesome. The trail uh, is enormous and runs basically all along the coast of the province now. And you could fly into St. John's and do day walks out of St. John's and do circles that would walk you out of the city and back into the city. Unbelievable that you could do it from an urban mm -hmm. uh, place. Like one of the th great things about St. John's is that the city is, is surrounded by, by coastline and, and wilderness, really. I mean, you can walk from the busiest downtown street in St. John's and within 20 minutes – you are completely surrounded by wilderness and ocean, you know, and like you can walk from the busiest hotel to nothingness. And it's just very unusual to be able to do that in a, in a North American city. This is Travel Through Steve's. We've been talking with Alan Doyle and Alan writes, Where I Belong, Small Town to Great Big Sea. He also writes a book called A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. Alan's website is alandoyle.ca. Alan, let's just cap this discussion with music because uh, you're well-known in Canada as a musician. And when the Canadians look at Newfoundland, they must marvel at, at how much creativity and musical culture comes out of that, that little rock in the Atlantic. Well, we're very new. And I think we're finally, you know, after 50-odd years of being a part of the country, you know, the, the rest of the country has finally looked east and gone like, what is going on out there? <laughs> like, because we're so disproportionately represented in the national arts scene that it's impossible not to comment on. Yeah, because you're you know. like 2% of the population. That's right. And yet we're, we're, I think we're 20% of the, of the national broadcaster, the Isn't CBC. That something? <laughs> what's, in, what's in the water? I mean, how does it, is that because you're the, the Irish sort of uh, gift of gas yes, and love of I music? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a part of it. I think it's a, the, the biggest things, though, I always I'll try to find the practical reason why people would learn to sing the song, you know, and it's like if you grow up in a small fishing town in Newfoundland and you want a song sung, well, you probably better got to learn it and sing it because or, or even write it and sing it because there's nobody coming to sing it for you. That's right. And, you know, I always compare it to America sometimes like, you know, that whole sort of traditional kind of classic tale of, you know, being in, say, for example, from the Midwest in the United States and 
and and being you know feeling kind of isolated and and how but of course you know if you're from i don't know somewhere in Kansas or whatever like for example in the 1950s you know there was a real good chance that one weekend during the summer a bus would pass through and Dean Martin would be on it you know they did that every summer they crisscrossed the of course nobody did that in Newfoundland you can't there were no roads <laughs> And so the people from small fishing towns especially had to entertain themselves and they had to have their own stories and their own songs and their own dances and their own instruments and their own instrumental tunes because they needed them to, to have a dance. You know, mm -hmm. no one's come to do it, you know, so you got to do it yourself. And, and so we ended up with this huge canon of what we call Newfoundland traditional songs and music and they're all about here and us. And Canada has embraced it. Alan Doyle, thanks so much for joining us and giving us a, a, a better understanding of not only the, uh, the sightseeing attractions, but the culture of, of your corner of Canada, Newfoundland. Thanks so much. Do you enjoy the taste of a Sazerac or prefer downing a hurricane? We're toasting New Orleans with the stories behind its favorite libations in just a bit. But first, fellow Newfoundlander Rick Mercer has had the fun job of showing Canada to itself every Tuesday night at 8 on TV, 8.30 in Newfoundland. He recommends some of his favorite places across the country in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's multi-ethnic. It's mostly easy to get around, and it has a lot of character from coast to coast to coast. There are plenty of reasons to enjoy a vacation in Canada this year. Rick Mercer has long been a staple on Canadian TV. He's known for the stunts he gets into as he explores the country to meet some of the friendliest people on the planet. We've asked him to entice his American neighbors with ideas for what we can explore north of the border on a summer escape to Canada. Absolutely. And you should add affordable because the <laughs> way the dollar is, Canada is a bargain. Now that's a good reminder. Oh, absolutely. Is it par now or what is the deal? Oh, no, my goodness. The Canadian dollar is so far below the American dollar. It is a one giant bargain up here for you. Okay. So it's Absolutely. inexpensive. And uh, do I get this right? Canada's got about a tenth of our population, but it's actually got more square miles of land. If you like the wilderness. <laughs> well, I don't, want, I don't want to play into the stereotype that we're a giant wilderness up here, but a big part of the Canadian psyche is absolutely the outdoors, and it is lovely in all seasons. Where I come from, you know, we are a big country. Where I come from, Newfoundland and Labrador, that's as far east as you can get. We're a rock in the middle of the North Atlantic. Uh, hmm. You know, it's, it's landscape like nowhere else in North America. It's dramatic. It's bold. There's an unforgiving ocean right there that, you know, if you go in there, like you might last three minutes if you're lucky. It's not, you know, the Florida beach. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place unlike anywhere else on earth. So I would tell anyone to start there, but I realize that's a little off the beaten track for most people. And is that what we, some people refer to as the Maritimes? Yes and no. Technically not part of the Maritimes, but that's exactly where we are. And don't ask why. So we're part of Atlantic Canada. <laughs> Atlantic and really, Canada. yes, I'll accept Maritimes. Maybe it's got the charm of if somebody vacationed in Maine or that part of the United States, it'd be similar to that. Uh, I would think it would be very similar, except Newfoundland is a very rugged place. It's, uh, you know, the Vikings settled there and left. It's that rugged. But now, now with modern technology, you can have a very mm -hmm. comfortable visit and see the whales and the icebergs. I mean, you know, 
I keep forgetting that that's what a lot of people want to come and see because I grew up with whales, you know, jumping like on my way to school. I could see whales <laughs> jumping in the ocean as the school bus went up the road and icebergs were there. So, uh, yeah, of course, come see the whales and the icebergs. Okay, so that sounds fascinating and, and really uh, appealing, but let's also temper that with a little bit of overcoming this idea that Canada is vast and sparse. A uh, big city, Toronto, is sort of the New York of Canada. Toronto is uh, is perhaps the most multicultural city on the earth. It is a great big city, just like any great big city, just like New York City. And it has all the bells and whistles that any great city would offer. And uh, as I pointed out, except uh, you're saving about 30 cents on the dollar. And the police are friendly and riding horses. I don't would say, you will see police on horseback, but I would be lying if you think that the police are just rolling around on <laughs> officiating on the horses at, all at, the time. at parades. Okay. Yeah. We have the largest pride parade, I think, in the entire world. That's a huge tourism draw. So it's that kind of city. And of course, so multi ethnic, uh, multicultural, uh, oh, yes, Caravana, which is the, you know, the Caribbean festival, is also one of the largest in the world. Nice. We are a city of festivals, and all of that business is going on all, all the time. Hey, Rick, when we're thinking about Canada, of course, a unique thing about Canada is the French uh, dimension. And it, you could basically uh, get a big dose of French culture by just going to Montreal. What's the latest with visiting uh, French Canada? I would say absolutely go to Montreal, but I would also say Quebec City. And if you go to Quebec City, which is the capital city of Quebec, you are going to Europe. You will feel like you're in Europe. It looks like Europe. They speak French almost, I won't say almost exclusively, but uh, you will feel like you are in Europe. It's like nowhere else. Your country is legally bilingual, but you are a a big-time media person and you speak only English. Is it conceivable somebody in Canada only speaks French? Uh, oh, my goodness, absolutely, of course. Yes, there are lots of places. Yeah, there are lots of places. I've visited them on the show uh, where, you know, you have to look long and hard to find someone who speaks uh, French. I mean, uh, English. English yeah. But, I mean, uh, my generation was perhaps the last generation that you may find people who don't parlez-vous. You know, French immersion education is much more common all over Canada now. And, oh, I didn't you know, realize that. So that's true. on the rise by Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Montreal. It's a fluently bilingual city. I mean, I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that they would have a hard time, you know, getting through the day. People love to see tourists coming and they'll certainly accommodate you and they'll certainly uh, speak English to the best of their ability. And and in a major city like Montreal, absolutely, you'd have no problem whatsoever. And Montreal is a sexy, sexy city. I mean, that's the best way I could describe it. It's It's just a wonderful place. And, you know, in Canada, it's often referred to as the two solitudes. There, there are two distinct cultures, two distinct societies. I mean, there are there are Quebec movie stars and Quebec musicians and Quebec, you know, artists of huge renown that are virtually unknown in in English Canada. And likewise, I mean, my show is aired in Quebec, obviously, because we're in the same country. But uh, you know, they would not be nearly as familiar with me. There is a French Rick Mercer, and his name is Infoman. And, hmm. and in Quebec, they call, they describe me as the English Infoman. Like, oh. the two of us, we know each other a little bit, but we basically <laughs> do the same thing in two different languages. Cette semaine, Infoman, c'est notre tournée des conseils municipaux du Québec. Jusque où la Corée du Nord peut-elle tirer ses missiles? Et Chantal me prépare psychologiquement pour la Corée du Sud. Et on le voit, ça se reflète dans les sondages. 
But absolutely, Quebec is a is a wonderful province to visit. And I don't think in North America you can find anything as unique in terms of like a different culture. The culture shock that you have when you go there is probably as great as you could have anywhere wow. in, uh, in North America. So I guess you could say that the two interesting urban uh, attractions in French Canada, Montreal is the big sexy city and Quebec is more the colonial European charming city. Yeah, although, it, you know, Quebec City is the capital, so it's, mm. you know, it's it's a real city by right. all stretches. It's not just like a tourist destination, but, you know, the old part of that city is uh, is tremendous. While hosting the Rick Mercer Report on CBC TV in Canada for 15 years, Rick Mercer got into all sorts of stunts and unusual places to prove that Canada is one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. He's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves with suggestions for some of the great places and experiences you can find as you explore Canada as well. There are clips from his TV show online at rickmercer.com. Today's interviews were recorded before the pandemic. Rick, in the United States, we have a vast area that a lot of people um, consider flyover country and we have a divided country now, and, and a lot of people think they're being not heard and so on. Is there a flyover country in Canada also? It's not quite the same. In Canada, you know, I wouldn't say that there's any states in the United States that, you know, have the uh, the unique position that they feel like they're outside of the mainstream. I think in Canada, it's the same could be said where I grew up, Newfoundland and Labrador, often feels like they're outside of the mainstream because they're out there on the edge in the North Atlantic. Mm -hmm. uh, Western provinces often felt like, uh, you know, they decisions were being made in central Canada that were often detrimental to them. And uh, so the West wants in was a slogan that was used for a long time. But, uh, you know, if you go out West, you have, uh, you know, Vancouver, which is a tremendous city. And I don't know of any city in the world that has, you know, such beautiful nature right at its doorstep. I mean, it's just Vancouver is just off the charts beautiful. It's like, mm -hmm. it's the most stunning part of the country I've ever been in. You know, and then we have prairie and we have desert. We have a lot of different things. And then, you know, Western Canada, you know, we have the Rockies, which are tremendous. You can go and get on that train with the glass dome and go across the Rockies and you'll never forget it. It's stunning. We're celebrating Canada with Rick Mercer. He's well-known. He's a household word in Canada for his Rick Mercer report. You can learn more about him at rickmercer.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Steve is calling in from just south of the border in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Steve, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick and Rick. I appreciate that. And, uh, hi, Steve. Rick Mercer, how are you, Rick? I'm great, thank you. Very good. I wanted to follow up on the conversation you were just having, and in particular your discussions about, or your discussion about Montreal, Quebec, and Vancouver. My question was, what would you consider the top five or ten places in Canada a person from the U.S. should visit to get a true flavor of Canada? Well, that's a tough one because, again, I think Americans often don't realize how vast we are. So I think, you know, an American understands like, oh, I'm visiting the United States. Where should I go? No one would say, well, oh, you got a week? Well, you absolutely want to check out Southern California and you want to go to Maine and you absolutely want to check out New Orleans. You know, they realize that that's impossible to do. It's, it's just too big. And Canada is this, exactly the same way. I would absolutely encourage everyone to visit my home province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I think it's incredibly unique and stunning. I think Toronto as a capital, as a, a provincial capital, is a, you know, it's a major city. Absolutely. It's a great city. I love our nation's capital, Ottawa. 
Alberta is a stunning province. I mean, I could just go on and on, so I'll just keep going till I hit five or ten. I mean, Alberta, absolutely. And plus, I'm going to get in so much trouble because if you're ever, you're sometimes asked, what's your favorite place? If you, you know, if you say your hometown, you get away with it, but anything other than your hometown, you start alienating people. The west coast of Canada, British Columbia, is absolutely stunning. And uh, I would absolutely encourage everyone in Canada and the United States to visit the Canadian North. I mean, the Arctic, the North, mm. is it's life-altering how stunning it is. And it's like nowhere else. I mean, you can go up there, you're in our nation's capital and a couple of hours on a plane and you are in you know, a territory that you will never forget. It's just absolutely stunning. And it's like, literally, and then you can go above the tree line where the trees don't grow. I mean, it's just amazing. Hey, Steve, thanks for your call. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Rick Mercer's our guide to getaways in Canada right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can watch Rick having fun all across Canada and clips from the Rick Mercer Report at rickmercer.com. Tony's calling from Victoria in beautiful British Columbia. Tony, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. And hi to both Ricks. I, lo- I love Rick Mercer's program, I l- and I love Rick Steve's program. So, And just to put myself in the right frame of mind, I'm standing on my deck. I'm looking across Harrow Street at San Juan Island, which is just uh, 10 miles uh, across the street. And, of course, beautiful San Juan Island in the U- United States. I grew up in the Canadian San Juans. That was our vacation zone. Every summer we'd go up there and... It's Canadian it's San Juans. The, I guess you call it the Gulf Islands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is an ethnocentric thing to say, isn't it? The Canadian I know. I've never Juans. heard of that before. Wow. But, I just yeah. did it. The Gulf yeah, Islands. And, oh, my God. Those Gulf Islands, those are spectacular. When they I started out as a... Oh, and I started out as a young guy in comedy and... I had a one-man show. That was one of my first big gigs. I, and I went to Hornby Island, British Columbia. And, wow. and I did a show in a small community center. And the door, you entered the door, and it was the inside of a massive tree. And you had to walk mm. through this tree to go into this, like, hobbit's house, which was the theater. And I'll never forget it. <sighs> the only thing I would take issue with the Rick Mercer is that Vancouver is a gorgeous city. Uh, Victoria is a magnificent city. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew the minute anyone started asking me, like, where's yeah. your favorite place or where should I go? It's just, it's, yeah, it's a hornet's nest. Now, on, the, yeah. not far from where this gentleman is calling, well, a couple of hours, I guess, Tofino, which is one of my favorite beaches oh, uh, in the world yeah. and a beautiful neck of the woods, which has uh, tremendous inns and amazing food. And my God, mm. it's just... And the most yeah. gorgeous time to be there, of course, is in the winter with the wonderful storms, that, uh, mm. the storm watching. And the cost of accommodation uh, in the uh, winter months in Tofino is about twice what it is in the summer months. So. And, and just so our listeners know, that's on the rugged Pacific coast of Vancouver Island, which... That really, it is. And that it, it is. is. It's high on my list. Everybody yes. loves yes. Tofino. Yes. We do rugged well. Tofino on the west coast and then on the east coast in my province, Newfoundland and Labrador, if you look up uh, Fogo Island, which is a place that I used to visit growing up, and I never ever told anyone to go to Fogo Island when they visited Newfoundland because it was just so far to get to. I would think, 
who would ever go there as a tourist? It's just so far, even though I knew it was beautiful. Now, Fogo. there's like a $60 million beautiful inn that's built there. It's just look up Fogo Island, F-O-G-O. F-O-G-O. It's a tremendous destination. And like I say, you'll see that uh, Canada does rugged and we do it well. Hey, Tony, you were going to ask about Prince Edward Island or something? Prince Edward Island. It was the only province of our 10 provinces that we had not visited. So I know how our uh, little island of Prince Edward Island joined Confederation, but I have never been able to figure out why it is one of the provinces. There is only 140,000 people in the whole province. Uh, They hold 2% of our seats in the House of Commons and 4% of our seats in the Senate. Uh, So they're they're just... uh, Overrepresented. Uh, overrepresented. Yeah, uh, we've got uh, that situation with our Senate, which is becoming more clear to people lately, is just this notion that every state or every province should have this, what, a similar representation, regardless of population. It might be an interesting question. I'm not sure about the origins, but I've never heard, it's not like in Canada, there's anyone who's ever, there's no movement to, you know, reduce the political influence of Prince Edward Island because, yes, while they are a very small province, or smallest province, I've never really heard anyone feel like they're overrepresented. You know, they are a province and always have been and always will. In fact, it was in Prince Edward Island where the Fathers of Confederation sat down and hammered out Canada. Hmm. Well, that's right. And then our Confederation was 1867, but Prince Edward Island did, did not join for another six years. And so I think that they just made carved out a tough uh, deal with the other provinces and said, if you want us to join, we, we're going to be a separate province, and we only have 140,000 people. So well, I mean, my, my, my hat's off to them. We but. can travel there and ask them themselves. Yeah. And I should say, if you do travel there, uh, we're talking about the Atlantic coast now. It is a small island. It is joined to the mainland, so you can drive there, no ferry necessary. And it's uh, golf for days and beautiful beaches. It's very much a great family. It is a, the perfect family-friendly vacation. Wonderful and, people uh, and magnificent seafood. Oh, if you like lobster, <laughs> it's oh, the man. spot to go. I'm, I'm just, um, my travel dreams are percolating here. Hey, Tony, thanks for your call. Thank you, and thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, and, and uh, happy Canada Day. <laughs> you too. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Rick Mercer. Rick's the host of the Rick Mercer Report. You can learn more about him at rickmercer.com. And Rick, it's been so fun to celebrate Canada with you uh, on the air for a few minutes. And you're from Newfoundland, uh, is that right? Newfoundland and Labrador, yes. When I grew up, it was just Newfoundland, but now it's Newfoundland and Labrador officially, and it's a name that I love. And from just the spirit of a travel show here on the radio, um, give us one little enticing reason to visit your home province. Uh the hospitality is on bust. It's what we're known for, first and foremost. It is, uh, it is a stunningly beautiful place. It is a rock in the North Atlantic. I encourage you to visit, you know, the provincial website and see what, everything we have to offer. There's been a real renaissance with food and with hospitality in the last, you know, uh, 25 years. We're known as an island of songwriters, of, of singers, of musicians. Uh, the culture is first and foremost in everyone's heart, and it's, uh, I promise you, you will not regret it. You will love it, and I bet you'll go back. And you must have some kind of a sprightly personality, because do I understand you're 30 minutes different than in the time zone than your neighboring provinces? We are unique that we have, yeah. So all growing up, Newfoundland is always mentioned, because anytime they always say, uh, you know, 8 o'clock, they'd say 8.30 in Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> so we are on the half-hour time zone. 
It's just one of the things that makes us incredibly unique. <laughs> hey, Rick Mercer, happy Canada Day, and uh, I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Thanks for Thank joining Thank you. Us. I would love to. I really enjoyed it. We're heading south next for Cocktails in New Orleans. Turns out the stories behind the city's famous beverages are a clue to what gives New Orleans its distinctive character. Cheers. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You can understand a lot about New Orleans by learning the stories behind its most famous cocktails, like the Sazerac and the Hurricane. Elizabeth Pierce joins us now to toast America's most spirited city in true New Orleans fashion. She's the author of Drink Dat, New Orleans, a guide to the best cocktail bars, neighborhood pubs, and all-night dives. Elizabeth also serves as drinks curator at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and she hosts her own drink and learn walking tours of New Orleans. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Reading through your book, it was so clear that in New Orleans, history and alcohol sort of mix together. And and as the tour guide, I think you function as the swizzle stick. Tell us just about this whole notion that booze is part of the New Orleans story. When folks take my Drink and Learn tour, I tell them that it's two hours, three centuries, four drinks. And that seems daunting, but it is, in fact, doable. So while I would argue that almost any city can have its history organized through and presented through drinks. Drinks are an integral part of a lot of culture historically and currently. But in New Orleans, we seem to kind of ratchet that up a little extra Starting from really the founding of the colony, New Orleanians learned very early on, France was disappointed in the colony. We didn't really have any profitable crops or commodity to ship back to France. And so they they left us alone quite a bit. And if you're on your own in a mosquito-ridden swamp and life is pretty tough with death Uh, hovering around the corner, then drinking is going to ameliorate your lot. And while it would be nice to get brandy coming from France, the, the brandy and wine that you might know, well, frankly, Rum from the Caribbean was much easier (laughs) to access. And so uh, from the earliest days of the colony, people are drinking to uh, anesthetize themselves to a pretty difficult life. The city is 300 years old, founded in 1718. And back then, the colonies were uh, more Protestant. And New Orleans happened to be more Catholic. And it was uh, happened to also be settled by according to your book, a motley mix of convicts and smugglers and prostitutes and so on. It just seems like all the conditions were ripe for this kind of a little bit of let the good times roll and a little bit of escapism through alcohol. Indeed, one of the last French governors, Kerouac, who was sent over to 
clean up things in the colony, wrote back to the king and said, if I send home all of the disreputable colonists, then Louisiana would be empty, be Mm -hmm. bereft of people. The stage is set very early on for a group of folks who are uh, happy to engage in what might be viewed as licentious or excessive or disorderly behavior. And it's coupled with a colony that isn't governed much. Uh, Spain eventually takes over. Well, there's and certainly no it does Puritans. I mean, you'd have the Puritans um, and everything in the colonies. Sure, right. So, in the, it, you have the the American colonies settled by very disciplined Protestants, are nothing like the gamblers and smugglers and, and prostitutes. Who Let's end up take in. it now, Elizabeth, to the 19th century, the 1800s, and. You've got this sort of demographic compost pile of convicts and smugglers and very thirsty troublemakers. And then you got New Orleans, which is, I understand, according to your book, the only place that had no closing hours and you could drink in the streets. That was unique among American cities. And I guess people got this notion that, hey, you can go down to New Orleans and just it's no holds barred. Yes, here come the Americans. Once we become part of the United States, again, this idea that New Orleans doesn't really fit in to the typical American cultural paradigm, and it really plays on that. It is really one of the first cities that begins to use what we would now call marketing in tourism and to encourage folks to come down here and have a different kind of good time. What did music have to do with that? Because we all also think jazz in New Orleans. Was that part of the mix? Sure. Yeah, so the first jazz recording is in 1917, and that is coupled with the demise of Storyville, which was a vice district that operated for 20 years on the edge of the French Quarter. Storyville is arguably the birthplace of jazz. Louis Armstrong, King Oliver are all playing there, and those folks eventually move to a district that is open into the French Quarter, settling on Bourbon Street. And Mm. Bourbon Street really comes into its own as an entertainment district in the early part of the 20th century. Okay, so New Orleans is just uh, sort of amping up here, and suddenly you've got prohibition. So what did that do to the momentum here for the party scene? Well, it was generally agreed upon by anyone in charge of enforcing prohibition that doing so in New Orleans was an exercise in futility. There was a federal agent named Izzy Einstein who was sent around the country to see how long it took him to get a drink. In New York, it took him 14 minutes. In New Orleans, it took him 35 seconds. Mm. And that is a pretty telling anecdote that crystallizes. It was so easy to drink here because we're a coastal city and the Caribbean is like right there. So it was very easy to bring in not only rum, but any products from Europe, because, of course, Mm. uh, the Caribbean is controlled by Great Britain at that time, Jamaica, Bermuda. So you could get anything from Europe. And Mm -hmm. it was a wet city. The locals have this almost like a Second Amendment fervor for being able to drink freely. It's their right to be able to have that drink. And this Go Cup is like a a New Orleans icon. Tell us a little bit about the the context of of the Go Cup and, and what is it? So, Rick, most Americans don't know that drinking on the street was actually legal, was permitted in most of the United States until the 1960s. Public drinking was okay. Public drunkenness was not. Mm. But starting in the 1950s, 60s, cities began to enact ordinances really in an attempt to control vagrancy. 
and these ordinances begin banning public drinking. However, it's right around this time that Bourbon Street, which is a pedestrian thoroughfare, emerges as this, frankly, very lucrative entertainment district. And so New Orleans was reluctant to ban public drinking at the very time that the, you know, golden goose was showing up in the form of the go-go. Oh, okay. And, when you, and say, so, when you say lucrative, you're really saying lots of booze being sold freely. Yes. And not only booze being sold, but you're having people who are then coming into clubs, who are going into restaurants. And so it isn't only buying the drink and walking on the street. It is keeping yourself in an area. And if you're strolling, so you're not going to get in a cab or you're not going to drive away, then you are keeping your money in this area as well. To go cup, is that just uh, any kind of a disposable cup that a, a bar will serve a drink in so you can leave with it? Yes, but a lot of bars now will brand those cups. People will Mm. take them home. Uh, Here in New Orleans, during Carnival, a lot of the Mardi Gras groups, which we call crews, will throw dozens and dozens of these cups. Um, They are our form of crystal. And it's sort of a declaration of a civil liberty to be able to have that cup in your hand and walk through the park, walk from one establishment to another, get into a taxi with it, whatever. It is. It's very civilized. And mm-hmm. the other thing is, and I, I think that for your your listeners who have been to European cities, New Orleans is a very, very walkable place. And walking with a drink in your hand slows you down. And it allows you to pause and appreciate mm. your surroundings. Maybe you might notice the wrought iron balcony or the beautiful shutters or the unusually painted house or you stop for that street musician, the journey from one bar to the other is as much a part of your experience Mm. in the city as being in the bar itself. You know, you're right. Now that I think of it, a big part of the joy that I remember of being in New Orleans was standing in the street with my drink listening to great musicians. It is an integral part of the New Orleans experience as much Mm -hmm. as eating good food and hearing good music. Louisiana native and cocktail historian Elizabeth Pierce is our guide on Travel with Rick Steves. She hosts Drink and Learn New Orleans walking tours and is the author of The Drink Dat Guide. It's part of a five-volume series of dat books that detail the seductive enticements that bring 10 million visitors a year to New Orleans for a good time. There's more about Elizabeth's tours at drinkandlearn.com. Elizabeth, how long have you lived in New Orleans? I grew up about an hour from New Orleans, just okay. north of the city, across Lake Pontchartrain. So you've, you've known it and, and loved it all your life, it sounds So like. I have. I love New Orleans like a person. Is it as lovable after Katrina as it was before? How has it changed? Is the soul any different? That is a complex question that I will do my best to answer in a few sentences. Okay. Katrina wrought a lot of change. And some of that change involved a lot of people coming here, some to uh, help with recovery, who then fell in love with the city and stayed and brought with them their ideas about what a city can be. Uh, They brought those ideas from afar. New Orleans has not historically been a city that has looked outside for ideas about how to be. And so that is something that has transformed the landscape, both professionally. We have a tremendous amount of entrepreneurship that's happening in the city, education-wise. 
And for some people, the changes that happened with Katrina did not go well. There were people who were left out of the benefits. But there are also a lot of changes that have been good for the city. And I think that bringing the city into the spotlight of the nation, frankly, the country was forced to confront that this is a very special, unusual, particular place mm-hmm. that is worth uh, not only saving, I think we're we're kind of past the the saving part, but definitely worth savoring. Mm. And I think that a lot of people who may still believe that I don't know, there's water in the streets or something that was a long time ago, um, should come down and discover that we aren't just Bourbon Street. We aren't just people having way, way, way too much to drink endlessly. Um, that there's a rich culture here that stands apart from anywhere else in the United States, but we are still part of you and uh, you should come here. It's as our Convention Visitors Bureau might argue, you know, it's cheaper than Paris. Ah, okay. And uh, now Katrina struck back in 2005. And I know it might not be the spin of the tourist board, but if somebody was to complain that the soul of New Orleans was just devastated by this and it's never recovered, what would you say to that? Well, I would say the city's burned twice. We've been through war, carpetbaggers. We've had other hurricanes, other disasters. And I would argue the core of what New Orleans is, which is a place that values the interaction between people, between friends and family, a city that encourages its residents to just step outside, feet on the street, to literally dance in the street that does not look askance at that, a place where people spend weeks planning their costumes for carnival, mm-hmm. where the sound of the city is being supported in this really tremendous organization called the Roots of Music, where elementary and middle school children are being schooled in New Orleans brass band traditional sound. There is a, a lot that is vibrant and present and that the soul of the city Sounds the like soul it's of the city is, is still very, very alive. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Pierce. Her book is Drink That New Orleans, a guide to the best cocktail bars, neighborhood pubs, and all-night dives. Boy, researching this guidebook must have been just brutal. You had to go to all these bars and get to know them. Of course, you've been doing this for many years, and you're a tour guide that takes people on drink-and-learn tours. You decided to eliminate music spots and strip clubs and focus on drinking atmosphere to find your favorite bars and watering holes. And you also talk about all-night dives. What's your favorite watering hole from a a drinking atmosphere place? And then what's your favorite all-night dive? The place where I would have the last drink of my life is... French 75 at Arno's restaurant because it's beautiful, it's intimate, it's romantic. I have tons of wonderful memories there. Uh, Their bar program actually won a James Beard Award. I've never had a bad drink there. A lot of people talk about last meal, but I like to think about the last last drink. And what is your last drink Um, again? Oh, so my last drink would be an old fashioned, which is what my mother drinks, and I do too. And then what about an all night dive? Because I I found that interesting. That was in, in the subtitle of your book, All Night Dives. I would send your readers and your listeners to a place that is unlike any place that I bet they have ever been. It is called Snake and Jake's. And you don't go early. I went at midnight when I wrote the Snake and Jake's entry, and that was early. 
It wasn't beginning to fill up at all. Snake and Jake's is outside of the French Quarter, so you're getting a very uh, local experience. Granted, there are often a lot of uh, Tulane kids who might end up there, but also a lot of folks that live. It's way, way uptown. And it was two bars that combined into one. There was Snake's Bar and Jake's Bar. It isn't attractive, but the drinks are incredibly cheap, and you can visit with the bartender. He will sound like he is from New Orleans, that great like New Orleans accent. It's the kind of bar, and I, I think this is true across the country and, frankly, across Europe, particularly in the U.K., where neighborhood bars and really neighborhood kind of divey bars are getting pushed out mm-hmm. through gentrification, through, you know, I can make more money if I have a parking lot here. Snake and Jake's is in a neighborhood, and that bar could never be created there. So a now. dive would be a, a bar that has a neighborhood personality, a local following, and has not invested a lot of money to spiff it up and make it feel fresh and new. Exactly, right. exactly. But that you will run into people, if you live in the neighborhood in particular, you will run into people that you know. Mm-hmm. And these places are places of community. They are yeah. third places. Ah, it sounds good. And Elizabeth, we're just about out of time, but I'd sure. like you to give me just the story, the Sazerac, the Hurricane, and the Pimm's Cup. Uh, what can you tell me about these classic, sort of iconic New Orleans drinks? So the Sazerac is the official cocktail of New Orleans, passed uh, by the Louisiana legislature in 2008. And every ingredient in it, from the bitters that were created by Antoine Peychaud, Herb Saint, created by Marion Lejean, with a home at the Sazerac Bar, it is grounded in the city. The hurricane comes out of Prohibition, a time when no one could get any whiskey. No whiskey was made during Prohibition, and none was uh, made during World War II either because of the war effort. And so Pat O'Brien, who ran a bar of the same name, creates this rum-based cocktail to use up uh, all the rum instead of the whiskey. And the Pimm's Cup, it isn't a New Orleans drink, although it's very popular. It's uh, invented in England. But the owner of the Napoleon House, Mr. Impostato, he didn't like drunks. So he pushed the Pimm's Cup as a light, uh, low-booze drink and encouraged New Orleanians to drink it. And now it is so popular, you'll see it on tons of menus around the city. And, in fact, the Napoleon House is Pimm's largest North American account. That is how much Pimm's we go through in New Orleans. And uh, just to wrap things up, I want to just, I'm your guest. You're going to take me, and we're just going to be in the very touristy Bourbon Street. And I just want to go to your favorite sort of experience nestled in that touristy zone. Where would we go and, and why? We're going to go a half a block off Bourbon Street on Conti to the Aaron Rose. We're going to go on Thursday at 11 a.m. during their Wake Up and Live special, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. is their happy hour. Uh, my dear friend Rhiannon Enlil is going to be our bartender, and you might have a $3 mimosa or a Bloody Mary. I don't know what's your drink of choice, but we will be sitting next to a retired judge, a bartender who might be his day off, and he's having a, a little morning uh, cocktail before he goes and runs some errands. And we'll also be sitting by uh, visitors who are asking Rhiannon for some advice. The Aaron Rose is tiny, and it is a haven even though it is merely steps from Bourbon Street, it, wow. it feels All like right. your place. Wow, it sounds like a, just a wonderful New Orleans experience. Elizabeth Pierce, what an exciting book for anybody going to New Orleans. Drink that, New Orleans. Thanks so much, and uh, I can really wish you happy travels. Thank you. Drop me off to New Orleans. 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tanton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the CDC in St. John's in Toronto and at WWNO New Orleans for their help this week. When you're on a road trip, you can listen to Travel with Rick Steves on one of more than 400 other radio stations. You'll find a list of where and when at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe, too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.